Um, and I'm going to start at the end of uh, chapter 1 and begin looking in chapter 2. But to do that today, what I want to do is maybe make a comparison or a parallel between a couple of places in Scripture, uh, Ephesians 2 being one of the places, but another place that's kind of overlooked with regard to this verse or the uh, idea that is being conveyed in this verse. But I want to at least try to point that out in a scriptural way and you can put it before the Lord. Problem is so many, I mean, we talk about a, a finished work, a salvation that is complete in Christ and that's the very reality that Paul is describing in these verses. We speak of being his body, the church. We speak of the grace of God that has brought to us a, a perfect and complete salvation. And I want to look at that in the light of this, these verses and in the light of what, well, I guess what we call the light of the resurrection. This body exists because of the resurrection. This body exists because there is a life, and not only a life, but the living one himself abiding in it, as he will end the chapter by saying. In verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 1, he says, And hath put all things under his feet, and it's a terrible place to start, I know, and gave him to be the head over all to the church, the church which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. And then speaking of those who are in that body, he speaks and says, In you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved." And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. In fact, when you go to the first verse, um, and it says, when you are dead in trespasses and sins, or you hath he quickened, that is not actually there in the original. It's, it's borrowed from the uh, fifth verse by the translators, but it works. Uh, he's actually, the very first part of chapter 2 is, is explaining to them their condition before Christ came, before Christ in his grace and in his mercy and in his kindness came to the dead and called out with the voice of a trumpet and the voice of the resurrection himself to those who would hear that voice and says, come unto me and live. Those who hear my voice shall live, he says. 
And so the very first part is showing them they were dead. Their condition was they were dead in trespasses and sins. They were without hope. They were in a state of being under the servitude and bondage of the Adamic nature. That's why he speaks of not just things they've done in times past, but speaks of the nature out from which they were done. By nature we were children of wrath. Jesus says those who haven't believed in him, the wrath of God rests upon them already. This is not something you do enough and finally God's wrath comes upon you as a punishment. We are born in sin under the wrath and judgment of God. That's the condition of men. I think we don't understand when... I think we actually believe that we had some choice in the matter. In the whole work of salvation. This is a work of God. This is something God did. And I think in the parallel that we'll make, we can see that if we're able to hear it and able to see it in that way. And I know many people can't see it that way because they have a dispensationalized futuristic view of these things. But if we can look at these verses, and, and what I'm referring to is Ezekiel 37, if we can look at those verses in the light of the dead and him coming to the dead and working his work that only he can do, then we'll see a work of the resurrection, a work of that body that now lives by one, that is the very dwelling place, the church that is filled with the fullness of one man in the life of that one man. In Isaiah 61, <clears throat> it is prophesied of Jesus. Of course, we know Jesus fulfills this prophecy when he comes. Isaiah 61, it says the Spirit in verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord, God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, li proclaim liberty to captives, to open the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, and they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And they shall build the old wastes, shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. And this is exactly what's taken place. This is the reality of the resurrection exhibited and brought about in the person of Jesus Christ to those who are the dead. He raises up, and what we're seeing in those Verses to raise up the former desolations. Jesus states this in Matthew 24, right? When he leaves the temple, leaves the house, your house is left unto you desolate. It means empty and without the proper resident living and abiding in it. Its function is now done. It's an empty shell now. Why? Because the true house is here. That will be destroyed. God won't stop it from being destroyed because it's so sacred to him. That is done. He has brought it to its conclusion in Christ 
brings about a new house. And that's what this is speaking of, referring to the one in his own power and his own life raised out from the ashes of a desolate system, a dead system, and brought about a new house filled with his glory, filled with his fullness, having in that house and upon that house the name of God himself that exceeds all other names. And we see the same power, the power that raised Christ out from the dead, now working toward those who believe. He comes to the dead as the resurrection. He calls out to them. And the body that now exists, called his church, is the body that has heard the voice made up of both Jew and Gentile, but Jew and Gentile defines nothing pertaining to that body. What a wonderful mystery is the body of Christ, the mystery of living by one life, having natural identities and having all of that that you, you know, you were born in the natural with those identities. However, when you step into the reality of the spiritual house of God, none of those identities matter. None of those things by which we divide ourselves matter. Because this is a body filled with one. Whose life is one. Whose righteousness is one. Whose identity before God and fellowship with God is one. It has nothing to do with Jew, Gentile, male, female, bond free. None of it matters. It's Christ all in all. That's the very defining of his body. Christ all. The fullness of him that fills all. That's the defining reality of a body of people that live in the resurrection. That live governed by the headship of one man. Not I but Christ is the true identity of that body. The true declaration of salvation for that body. And in those statements, you encapsulate what we just read in Ephesians 2 and what we just read in Isaiah. You, you hear 1 Corinthians 15, which we'll read again. Again, just like Ezekiel 37 has been pushed off into the future so much that it loses all of its present fulfilled significance to most people who read it. Which is a shame. But in these words, when we look at the dead that he has now brought to himself and quickened by his own life, you can read things like Romans chapter 5, verse 19, and go through chapter 6 as we did, I think we did before. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the, diso but so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, and where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. These are words written about two conditions, the dead and the living. The dead and the living are defined by two men. One in Adam and one in Christ. As in Adam all die, so in, Adam, or so in Christ all are made alive. First Adam of the flesh. The second man is the Lord from heaven. The life-giving 
spirit. That's the whole reality of 1 Corinthians 15. That's the power of the resurrection. We, we read those words and we don't understand that those words are declaring the very salvation we presently enjoy. So we say, won't it be wonderful? Won't that be great? When we're actually quickened. Won't it be great when we're actually mortal puts on immortality? Won't that be wonderful when the corruptible puts on incorruption and you yet sit in those seats or declare those words while you're born of an incorruptible seed? If that's not the transaction by which that took place, then what could it be? You think the incorruptibility of a natural body or the glorification of a natural body is greater than actually living in a body raised up by the resurrection himself? A house that he inhabits and fills with his own glory? The problem is our eyes have not been opened to see the glory that fills his house, so we want to see it everywhere else that we possibly can imagine it will show up. This is resurrection life. And I've heard those words, that phrase so often perverted. They'll say, oh, we, get, we live the resurrection life. And then they start making us the object of resurrection life. How we're going to manifest it to the world and show Christ to the world. We've done a poor, poor, poor job of that. If that's our calling. The calling of the church is not to point them to the church. The point, the calling of the church is to point them to the head of the church. So that they would see the face, the identity of the church instead of seeing the poor representation that we are. Because I promise you, at your best, you're still a very poor substitute for Jesus. I say we, right? <laughs> Not excluding me. Me much more probably. In these words, Paul is describing the true power of the resurrection, the power manifested in his body. That body exists because of the power manifested by God. It doesn't exist to manifest it. It exists as the manifestation of the power of God. That's why the church even exists. God has manifested his power so that the church would exist as proof that he lives. As a body filled with the life of the one who was risen, dead to sin, alive unto God, in whom death has no more claim. The law has no more, has no claim at all. Can't point to it and see a fault because he's the very life out from which its demands proceeded. That life lives in his body. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Why? Because they have now lived and become dead to sin and live by the very law of the life of the Spirit himself, fulfilling in his body the righteous demand of the law, bringing to, bringing to pass what 1 Corinthians talks about. Then it shall be said, grave, where is your victory? Why? Because sin was the, uh, the, the law was the one that 
condemn people under sin. Death is how sin brought death. And what, what was the overarching thing that condemned all men? The law. The power of it all was the law. The power of sin, law. Pointing at men and saying, you're not the point. You're not the one. There's a perfection I'm looking for. You're not it. The whole work of this power, this life exerted, is that God brought into the soul of men the perfection that God was always after. The one that he could look at and say, in this one I'm satisfied. I know what we were talking about last week over here. It was the whole house filled with glory. What is that? God has filled that place with his own satisfaction. The thing that gives him glory, praise. That fulfills his eternal purpose. That is the declaration of the victory. What shall we Say then, it goes on in chapter 6 of Romans, after what we just read. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Again, I'm not going to stay on that forever. I've been writing some stuff about this in a, in a thing that I'm hoping by the time I die to get done. Uh, what, shall we continue in sin? He's not, he's not telling them, you, don't do it. You know, gird up your loins and get your willpower intact because you're going to have to do away with sin, guys. You're going to have to just stop doing it. Because that's not the way to get grace to abound to you. It's not him correcting people with that mindset. It's him saying, wait a minute. The whole work of this grace, where we've been brought from the reign of one man into the reign of another man, makes it impossible to live in one realm and the other at the same time. You can't live in sin and righteousness at the same time. Not as a state of being. Not as a condition of the soul. Can you screw up? Absolutely. Prime example right here. But the state of the soul doesn't change. Why? Because the life of that soul doesn't change. The one who reigns in that soul doesn't change. In the midst of our mistakes, we can fall on the rock and fall on the grace of God that has wrought a work in our hearts and has anchored us in something that is true and eternally secure. Looking at recently some stuff, uh, you know, the whole debate of eternal security. That's a, man, what a, what a joke that debate is. And it's gone on for thousands of years. So you have some that says universal, eternal security. Then you have some that says, no, it's not as universal as that. It's a little more, you know, limited in its security. So you have all of these different ideas. And the fact is, none of them actually look into eternity to define eternal security. Not one of them. They look at men. To define the true significance of eternal security, which I wholeheartedly believe in, however, to understand the truth of it, you have to actually look into eternity to see it. You have to see it in the face of an eternal covenant that God has made. And once that covenant is written in the heart, 
It is secure because it is not of you, but of him. And if it's of him, it can't be upset. It can't be broken. It can't be changed because he never changes. In the midst of your ever changeable variables that we are and that we have, God doesn't. That's why he made a covenant, not a contract with us. He made a covenant where he's the stronger party. And he, as being the stronger party who did what those vessels he made the covenant with could not do, overrides the insufficiencies of the vessel. And he does so by writing a covenant in your heart, giving his own son as the embodiment of that covenant to your soul. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Do you hear the impossibility of that? He's not saying, man, I wish you'd stop doing that because this is what you are, not this. Isn't that, that's therapy, right? <laughs> you know, this is the real you, not this. Stop doing this. This doesn't identify with your new state. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, how in the world can these two things exist at the same time? You can't have sweet and bitter. Water, good and bad fruit. Isn't that what James said? Can't have those things existing at the same time. Same thing here. How shall we that are dead to sin live in that place any longer? Know you not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus, were baptized into his death. His death is death to sin. To the sin we were bound to and found in as a state. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into his death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, also should, uh, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That's resurrection. That's the body existing. That's the dead being come to by the grace of God and saying, live. Come to me that you may live. Now that we may walk in the life of the one who was raised by the glory of the Father. Live by him in no other way. And again, you can hear in all these words, 1 Corinthians 15, those who have been baptized into Christ have put off corruption, put on incorruption have been made free from the law of sin and death through the imputation of the law of life. Let me skip over a couple things here. Um, so in the view of all of that, I want to make the parallel between these two places. Consider it for a moment. <clears throat> Verse, chapter 2 of Ephesians, we'll read it again, verse, verse 1. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also you, we had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, 
the richness of his mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sins. Even in our weakness and inability. Hath quickened us together with Christ. And he defines this in a parenthetical statement. By grace are you saved. This is grace. This is salvation. God coming to the dead. That they may live by him. Herein is the love of God made manifest toward us. It says in in one of John's epistles. This is the love of God made manifest toward us. He gave himself. He died for us. What? That we might live through him. Same reality being expressed there. This is his love toward us. And what I want to do in this lesson, if I can, and, you know, we'll continue through chapter two, go back to some of the beginning and at least the lessons that I'm doing. But I want to show how Paul reaches back into the old covenant and shows these things as realities of salvation, not just prophecies yet to be fulfilled, but as realities of salvation present, perfect, and complete. And while it will take some by surprise and upset these commonly held theological ideas that some have, my purpose is to describe the beauty, the miraculous nature of being risen with Christ, being the body of Christ, to be the body under the headship of one perfect man who lives and reigns. So we'll go to these verses, Ezekiel chapter 37. And it won't, it, won't, it won't surprise anybody in this room that when you look at commentaries about these verses in this chapter particularly, you don't find many people that point to Ephesians chapter 2. Or anywhere else for that matter, they point to the far distant future and a natural restoration of Israel. That's when they're going to be restored as a people and God's promise to them, it's finally going to be fulfilled, and if it never is, then he lied. I've heard that. What I'm trying to tell us is that God hasn't lied. And that what he promised his people, he has fulfilled. And he fulfilled what he promised his people in his son. And now to partake of the promise made to his people, they must find it in his son. There's the point. There's not two different ways here. God doesn't have two different decisions. He made one judgment, one decision. This is preordained by God and says, in my beloved son is where you'll be known of me, related to by me, and you will have fellowship with me in no other way. And that's the whole point of this. He utilized natural things, natural lands and kingdoms and all of that, but it was to point to a spiritual end. That transaction has happened. First the natural, afterward the spiritual. And those who fail to understand that transition fail to understand the reality described in these verses. Because we're still thinking God would lower himself to bring it into the earth again since he has fulfilled it in his beloved son. 
He's going to bring it to its crescendo and then start something else. Bring it to its conclusion and then start something else beyond that conclusion. That doesn't make sense. You can't bring it beyond I am Alpha and Omega. This is what we're seeing in these chapters. God fulfilling his promise. Not yet to be, but in the resurrection. Verse 1, Ezekiel 37. Again, keep in mind what we're reading in Ephesians 2 and all the other verses we could bring in with it. 1 Corinthians 15 and all the stuff I hadn't read. Same thing. 37 verse 1, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones and he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. He didn't just say they were dead, he says they were dead and very dry bones. That's lifeless. There's not even Mara left in them. That's dead. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? What a question. Because this is the question that befuddles all men with regard not to just this setting here you look at it and you think but when you understand the true depravity and state of men before the grace of God appeared there's the question can they live is there any hope of life at all here because that's the division living dead it's not sinner saint or Good and bad or, you know, better than this one. It's dead or alive. Can these bones live? They're very dry. There's no, look at them. There's no sign that they can be resuscitated. They're bones. Dried up. Can they live? This question diverts back again. Is diverted back by the intelligent prophet who says, I don't know. There's no way I can know this. This is beyond me to even fathom how it's possible. And if it is possible, you're the only one that knows. And you're the only one that can do it if it's possible. Isn't that kind of reaching back to Abraham and says the one who made the promise was the only one that was able to fulfill the promise that he made? Why? Because he was dead in his body. His body was insufficient to carry about the promise. You know why? Because God made it that way. He designed it that way. He let it go to the point where his body was dead. And he knew it. And the King James would have you believe that he didn't confess the deadness of his body. So, you know, he was a man of faith. So, you know, he, he totally ignored the deadness. No, the, the literal says he knew for certain his body was dead. Not that he overlooked it and didn't confess it. He knew it was certain that he was dead. And that his wife's womb was dead and barren. But he knew one thing. That if God made the promise, 
God is sufficient to bring it about. In the midst of the deadness and the insufficiency, God can do this. So the prophet says, only you know. Only you know this. I read it in view of the verse, when we were dead in sin. He quickened us. What a state of absolute desolation. I, kill, I came to build the desolate wastes. Yeah, a new city called the New Jerusalem. A new house. A new creation. So the question, this is from Keelan Delich commentary, the question asked by God whether they could live or come to life again prepares the way for the miracle. And Ezekiel's answer, Lord thou knowest, implies according to human judgment, it was inconceivable that they could have life again. That there was nothing but the omnipotence of God that could affect this condition. Didn't just say, I don't know, only you know. It's saying, this is not even possible. And if it is possible, in my view, you're the only one that can make it possible. Well, that's true. But it's not just true of this as a testimony. It's the truth of reality of salvation. It's the truth of God coming to the dead and bringing life because there's no hope otherwise. While we were without strength. That's a state of death that no men can truly grasp in a natural mind. We just think we chose Jesus because we want a better life. Or we chose Jesus because we were having bad times and we needed good times. Or we were scared to be judged at the final day of judgment. No, you needed Jesus because you were dead. And Jesus, by his mercy, came to you as the dead and drug you to himself. That's a big deal. That's a work only God could perform. It didn't, it's not that I crawled to him. He brought me to himself. Called me by his grace. Bid me come. And gave me the ability to do so by dragging me to him. <laughs> this is all the work of God and it is marvelous in our eyes. Isn't that what it says? The whole building of the house. This is the house he builds. This is a people made a temple where he can inhabit it and fill it with his glory. It is marvelous in our sight. And it's much more marvelous when you actually see it. The one who did it and makes it so. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. John chapter 5, verse 24, I say unto you, he that hears my words, believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death Unto life, verily I say, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. That's what we're seeing right here in Ezekiel 37. So let's go on. The, uh, 
verse 7 of Ezekiel 37. So I prophesied as I was commanded. There's the word of the Lord. And as I, command, as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. They were standing. I mean, there was all together no life. Then he said, prophesy to the breath. This is the English Standard Version. Prophesy, son of man, and say unto the breath, thus saith the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on the slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now not separated as two kingdoms, and we're going to see that at the the latter part of this chapter, but one exceeding army, now under one banner, not under two. Because it was a divided kingdom at this time, too. And not to get into it today, but I see that as a picture of the Jew and the Gentile being brought into one body. And you see that at the end of this chapter where he takes two sticks and he puts the names of, you know, the two tribes or the warring tribes or the divided tribes, and he puts them in two sticks, holds them in his hand together and makes one stick. I see that as Jew and Gentile. But when he talks about the breath, I saw a distinction here. Just looking up the words. And to me, it's beautiful when you see that this isn't talking about some natural restoration of a nation, but a spiritual resurrection taking place to the body of those who are dead. Some would render it wind, others spirit. But it's a, it's a different word. You remember, many would go back and point to where God breathed into Adam. Well, there's a different word. There's, I think, uh, what is it, nef- nefesh, and then ruach, I think, is the other word. They're two different words. The one used for The one used for Adam is not the one used here. In fact, the one used for Adam is less significant than the one used here in this picture. The one used here is always defined as the spirit of God himself, the very breath and life and spirit of God, that divine life. What he breathed into Adam was not. He became a living soul. He became a man existing. This breath, this wind that came to these and they stood as a living body was a different. It's the very divine life of God. And I think in that you see something significant. You see the breath. Again, it's the breath is ruach, which defines the breath that belongs. This is the breath in Ezekiel, ruach, which defines the breath that brings spiritual divine life. And you're seeing the gathering and raising up of one man filled with the true life of the Spirit. Why? Because you're seeing this very resurrection that God promised. And now in John we read, he declares, I am. 
There's the life that now this is a picture of. This is the life that comes into the dead bones. Bring, not just bringing them together, but giving them life. One life. There's a lot of places that you can look at that and the bringing in of the four corners or the four winds and you take that to Revelation where you have those from the four corners of the earth and all that, and they won't bring anything that defiles or abominable into the city. And you see the same prophecy here in Ezekiel. We won't get to that. We'll skip that. But John chapter 20 says this, verse 19. The same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus. Now this is Jesus after he's been raised. From the dead. And he stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had said so, he showed unto them his hands and his side, and they were the, uh, then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus unto them, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. I think we see a picture of this. Not just breathing on them to anoint them to go out and preach, but giving his life. That's what, that's what people need. They don't just need me out there talking about him. They need him. They need his breath. They need his life. Again, we're not to point people to the body but the head of the body. And so, here's the risen son breathing upon them, saying, receive my spirit. And this is a vital statement concerning what his resurrection has performed. This one raised by the eternal spirit now can give his eternal spirit, his life, his power to those who believe. Now, as I said, it's very difficult to find anybody who looks at Ezekiel 37 and immediately says, oh, that's what it's saying in Ephesians chapter 2. That's what it's saying in 1 Corinthians 15. <laughs> because they can't. Their theology forbids it. But the truth doesn't forbid it. So I found one place. I'm going to read what it says. The study of Old Testament material from Ephesians chapter 2, meaning the parallels it has in so many uh, Old Testament places, has received relatively less attention from New Testament scholars. And I suggest, however, that a careful study of Ephesians 2 appears to point to the possibility of Paul's use of the Old Testament in Ephesians 2. Okay, of course. Where else is he going to get it? Yeah. <laughs> Where else could he go? Sears and Roebuck? I mean, there was only one other place. In particular, Paul may have constructed his argument based on Ezekiel 37. In that he not only borrowed the, uh, the material that is found in Ezekiel 37, but that he also applied it to the new community of Christ made up of Jew and Gentile. 
The similarities between Ezekiel 37 and Ephesians 2 have been rarely noted by New Testament scholarship. An exception, however, is Ralph P. Martin. He recognized the possibility or the possible connection between Ezekiel 37 and Ephesians 2 in his monograph titled Reconciliation. And I'm telling you, whether multitudes of New Testament scholars agree or not, this is what Paul is addressing. It is him coming to the dead and bringing to them his own life. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. It is, as it is sown a natural body, is raised a spiritual body, there's a natural, there's a spiritual. So it is written, the first man was made a living soul, the last was made a quickening spirit. Then in verse 11 of Ezekiel 37, let's read that. And he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried, and our hope is gone, and we are cut off from our parts. Therefore prophesy, say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves, and cause you to come up out of your graves. There's language there. We, we, you know, Jesus was raised up out from the dead. This is the same language. I will cause you to come up out of your grave and bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you out of your graves and, you shall, and I shall put my spirit in you and you shall live and I shall place you in your own land. Then shall you know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it. Again, I will bring you out of your grave. You'll know I am the Lord when I bring you out your graves. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me shall live, though he were dead. I will open your graves. Isn't that what happened in Matthew 27? To me, this is a testimony of what happened, the testimony of this picture of Ezekiel 37 says when Jesus had cried, this is verse 50 through 53 of Matthew 27, when Jesus had cried again with a loud voice, he yielded up the ghost and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, meaning God did it. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept came up out of the graves after his resurrection. And they went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Why? To show that what God had promised, he had done. He had not just done it in that measured small scope. He had done it in a universal way. Now all men can live by him and be brought out of the graves of sin and death and trespasses. But this was a picture. He went into the holy city. They didn't go somewhere else. They went into the city that promise was actually made to and said, it's happened. The veil's rent. The holy of holies is open to us and we live. 
He has opened the graves as He has promised. John 5, 28, Marvel not at this for the hours coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear His voice. And I recognize when people hear the word graves, they immediately get the imagery of dead bodies being laid in tombs and then coming back. So we have adopted this glorified body thing where they'll come out of the grave glorified and whatever. But you have to keep this within the context of the verses. Jesus had already addressed this by saying, I will bring them up out of the graves. They that are in the grave shall hear my voice. And I want you to see this resurrection, the life-giving power that he talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. So it is written again, the first man was made a quickening spirit. And then he goes on, so when the corruptible shall have put on incorruption, verse 54, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is your victory? So the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which, does giveth, which gives us the victory through Christ our Lord. Here's Isaiah 25, verse 8 through 9. You write these down and look at them. He will swallow up death in victory. Same thing, but this is salvation. He has swallowed up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off their faces. And we read that in Revelation as well, and we say, won't it be wonderful? When the tears on every man is wiped away, and all sorrow and pain is wiped away, and he's declaring to you, this is salvation. This is the moment we come into the heaven itself, into the city that is governed by a lamb on the throne who says, I make all things New. Why? Because the old has passed away and the new has come. And the rebuke of his people shall be taken away from off the earth. Again, this is Isaiah 25, 8, through 8 and 9. And it shall be said in that day, this is our God. We have waited for him. He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him and we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Again, showing that the bringing up out of their graves, the swallowing up of death in victory, the wiping away of tears is salvation. God doesn't have two or three different ones. Only one. Hosea 13, 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death, pass from death into life. That's the work of this redemption. O death, I will be your plague. O death, I will be your death. O grave, I will be your destruction. And I will not repent of it, is basically what it's saying. I will destroy death. That's the body of Christ. A body filled with a life that death cannot touch. And we're not talking about physical death because we're all going to do that. But even when the physical death comes, the death that we have, it, we, won't, we won't feel the sting of that death either. Why? Because we're dead with Christ. To sin, we're dead with Christ. 
to all that he died to. We've been baptized into his death. We hadn't been given one of our own. We don't have a, a subsequent death that's going to happen. And we say, boy, we got to get busy dying to self. What is that? We've been baptized into his death. God didn't bind us to our own death. He's given us one. <laughs> he brought us into one. You are dead. Your life is hidden with Christ. And then, there's other places. <laughs> I wanted to go in Isaiah 26, but I think I'm about out of five minutes maybe. Let's just read a couple of verses. Isaiah 26, verse 12. Lord, because this is saying the same thing as Ezekiel 37. Lord, thou wilt ordain peace for us. For you also have wrought all our works in us. See, this brings in the really the significance, the power of the question <laughs> and response in Ezekiel. Can these bones live? Can this condition of death be reversed? Can they be redeemed? Lord, only you know because only you have the power to do this. You will ordain peace for us. This is the peace that, and there is a peace he's going to talk about in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. He came and preached peace unto you that were afar off and those, and those that were nigh. He will ordain peace. That means to set it, to establish it, to fix it as a permanent thing. So this peace that he brings about is not some temporary remedy to an issue. It's an established state of being that is permanent and unchanging, complete, where nothing is missing. That's what that peace means, shalom. Because you have wrought all our works in us. That's an amazing statement. What does he bring us up out of, the, out of death to do? Now we've got to do the works of God. Now we've got to live for Jesus. Now we've got to do all this stuff. It's so difficult. No. You've ordained peace for us. Why? Because you have done our works in us already. <laughs> You've already done in us what we're required to do. That's a wonderful peace. That's how it can actually be peace. That's how it can actually be something that is without missing parts and pieces. Because if I do it, I guarantee you there's going to be missing parts and pieces and God's going to expect more. But he can't expect more to the thing he looked at and says, it is done and I'm satisfied. You've wrought all our works in us. And this is the key, again, to the, to the peace. This is the glorious gift of being his body. Made unto you righteousness. Made unto you redemption, sanctification, wisdom. This word in us, you have done all our works in us. It actually means 
toward us, in us, and unto us. It has all those three definitions. It kind of covers all the bases. Right? In us, to us, unto us. However you want to look at it, he's done it. And it goes right back to what we read in Ephesians. And I'll stop here because to get into something else would take too long. Um, We've already read this concerning what he did, how he worked, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward. It's Ephesians 1.19, who believe. According to the working of his power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Here's the power of God toward us who believe. This is it. God has wrought all the works in us. He has brought about a life, a righteousness, perfect, complete. And those who hear him are imputed with that perfection, that life. That life in which all divine realities exist and are provided. By grace, you are saved. Not of yourselves. Why? Because you were dead and couldn't do it. I mean, do we not know how dead works? That's how dead works. You can't do it. You're dead. So he comes to the dead by his kindness and gives to the dead his life and all that that life has in it. Righteousness and all other spiritual realities. That's what it means with you are blessed with all spiritual blessings. How? Because you live as the house that is filled with all that he is. There's God's blessing to you. There's God's love toward you. And this is the truth and reality of being the body of the resurrection himself. So we'll stop there, guys. Thank you very much. 